146, if you need the words. Oh, how he loves you and me.
seated. I hope that's your prayer. They're going to get uh, the slides switched around here real quick and get uh, the sermon slides up. We're so glad that you're opening your Bibles to Roman, uh, excuse me, Revelation uh, chapter 7. Good job with our children's choir. Thank you, Jennifer, for what you do. And thank you, fellows, back there. All of the technology, that there, the sound and the vision, projection, all. How old, what's the oldest one back there? 15? 15 and below are doing all this. So, listen, don't discount uh, younger people. They know how to do all this stuff. You don't have to show them hard, but they know how to do it. See, they're ready already. So I hope you're ready. I'm going to have you uh, stand in a moment with me. We're going to read the scripture together today, but you can find your spot. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, as we continue our message, a two-part message uh, called Worthy and Wonderful. Worthy and Wonderful. Uh, Skip Heitzig. Uh, in his book on Revelation, tells about a man who fell into a pit and could not get out. He said a subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, it's logical that someone would fall down there. Then a Christian scientist came along and said, you only think that you're in a pit. A Pharisee strolled by and said only bad people fall into pits. A mathematician calculated how the man fell into the pit. A news reporter wanted the exclusive story on his fall into the pit. A legalistic Christian said, you deserve that pit. Confucius said, if you had listened to me, you wouldn't be in that pit. Buddha said, your pit is only a state of mind. A realist said, that is a pit. A scientist calculated the pressure necessary in pounds per square inch to get the man out of the pit. A geologist told him to appreciate the rock strata in the pit. An evolutionist said, you are, re- you are a rejected mutant destined to be removed from the evolutionary cycle. You'll die in that pit so you cannot produce any pit falling offspring. The county inspector asked if the man had a permit for digging that pit. A professor gave him a lecture on the elementary principles of the pit. An invasive person avoided the pit altogether. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything till you've seen my pit. A charismatic from the faith movement said, just confess it and you'll not be in that pit any longer. An optimist said things could get worse. A pessimist said things will get worse. But Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. I love that, don't you? Man, I love that. We were in a pit and Jesus reached out his hand and lifted us out of that pit. I love Jesus, don't you? And we're talking about this morning again, how Jesus is worthy. He's worthy. God is worthy of our trust, our worship and our service. And we know that as God, he's worthy, period. Well, that was unexpected, wasn't it? But I'm trying to impress upon your hearts that he's not only worthy, he's wonderful. 
We're seeking to know know more about our wonderful and worthy God in Revelation chapter 7. And I want to bring you back up to speed. If you were not here last week, this is part two, but don't feel bad. I'm going to bring you up to speed real quickly. A little unusual to divide a passage, but we had to do that for time's sake. And last week we saw that God is worthy of our trust and our worship and our service because he is sovereign. He is in complete and total control. And I showed you that again here in Revelation chapter 7. He's in complete and total control. We're kind of in an interlude of parenthesis of grace. These judgments, these sealed judgments have been poured out. The wrath of God upon man. And we're in between the opening of the the sixth seal has been opened. The seventh seal has yet to be opened. We have kind of an interlude here. And we're looking at a time here concerning the tribulation period. You see it there. The rapture has already taken place. Possibly a short amount of time has taken place. The tribulation period has begun. And in the midst of this time, we have a parenthesis of grace. And we see that even in this judgment, God remembers mercy and he keeps his promises. And I shared with you last week, what is the purpose of the tribulation? Why is there a tribulation time? Why is it that God is going to bring tribulation, allow this to come? And I said there are three main reasons. Number one, to judge unrepentant sinners. Those who will not receive God's grace and mercy and love, they just resist him. They'll come a day of judgment. Secondly, we said because he's going to bring the nation of Israel to the Savior. He's going to bring his people back to himself. You can jot down that Daniel 9, 24 and Romans eleven twenty six, And we see he's going to bring his people back to himself. And then thirdly, this is exciting. We're going to see many, many people are going to be brought to salvation. They're going to be brought to the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation time. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. And last week we saw a group of Jews, 144,000 Jews who will be protected throughout the tribulation period. And we believe that they will preach the gospel to the masses and see a tremendous amount of people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first reason that God is worthy of our trust and our worship and our service is because he is sovereign. But there's two more reasons I want to share with you. And we're going to do that today, God willing. Before we do, let's stand together and let's read the scripture. And I have it on the screen before you. And we'll read this together. I know we have different translations. So this helps us be on the same page. Would you stand with me as we read the scripture today? We'll read it together and we'll have a quick word of prayer and then we'll get right into the word today. Are you ready to read? All right, let's do that. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And now, Father, we thank you for this time. And I pray that just as the potter fashions the clay, would you fashion and mold us now by your word and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. We've already covered, if you were here last week and we've already reviewed this morning, that he is worthy of our trust, our worship and service because he is sovereign. Now, if you're a note taker, and I hope that you are, uh, because it will help you to retain what we're talking about. The second reason we see in this passage uh, why God is worthy of our trust and our worship and our service is because he is the Savior. He is the Savior. We just read about here a crowd so large that it's impossible to count. John said in his word here, uh, in what he wrote in God's word, no one could number them. Now, surely God knew how many were there. But for us, it was beyond us. It was a mass of people so large, we could not count them. There were people there from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Now, to borrow the question that the elder asked John in verse 13, who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? You know, one of the elders turned and said, hey, who are these people? Where did they come from? By the way, if you're a teacher, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you like to teach, uh, one great way to help people to learn is to ask good questions. Because it makes people think and ponder and actually, hopefully, desire to know the answer. Sometimes we need answers to questions we didn't even know we needed. And sometimes we want answers to questions we don't need. But anyway, he says to John here, who are these people? And did you notice what John said to him? He said in verse 14, he said, sir, you know. You know the answer. I mean, you're asking me, but you know. And it says there that the elder told him, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, these people are not from the church age. They've been raptured up. I was asked last week a good question. And that was about the salvation of the 144,000. How did they get saved? Well, God saw to it. They heard the gospel and they got saved. They obviously were not saved when the rapture happened because they would have went up with us. But sometime after the rapture, 144,000 or hear the gospel, respond to the gospel. They're saved. They're sealed with a special seal. They're preaching the gospel, I believe. And we find, I believe, some of the fruit here with this massive group of people, these believers. And so these believers, this isn't us. We've already been raptured. We're with the Lord. These are believers who've come out of the tribulation period and specifically the great tribulation. Now, I've not talked a lot about it, but on both of um, well, actually, on the other chart I gave you, the one with the outline, you saw that I divided the tribulation time uh, in three and a half years and three and a half years. And so there's a seven year tribulation time. But it's divided. It's cut in half. Three and a half and three and a half. Let me give you a quick summary. And by the way, if you like to do Bible study, if you use the Internet, write down this address. This is a reliable site. I've told a lot of people. I point them to this. They summarize things quickly. They're solid. If you've got questions, you can go into this site. It's gotquestions.org. Gotquestions.org. And the neat thing about their site is they have a site for children. And you can get that site off of that site. They have a site for teens. 
And I mean, you can literally go in there and type in tribulation period. It'll pull up things and they're solid. It's doctrinally correct. It's good stuff. But let me give you what it said there. Of course, we know it's seven years. That's determined by an understanding of the 70 weeks of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, there's seven years. The great tribulation is the last half. Okay? The great tribulation is the last half of it. Three and one half years in length. It's distinguished because uh, the beast or the Antichrist will be revealed and the wrath of God will greatly intensify during that time. So you have the tribulation, that's the whole time, but the great tribulation, that's the latter part of the tribulation period. So it's not the same thing. We're not going to get deep into that because I'm trying to kind of fly over here, okay? I don't want to muddy the waters because a lot of you are just getting this down. So you know, there's a tribulation time, seven years, the wrath of God, and the latter half, three and a half years, Things get a lot worse. Great tribulation. Matthew twenty four fifteen talks about it. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Matthew twenty four twenty one. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And so the Bible says that these believers came out of the great tribulation. These are people that place their faith in Jesus Christ during this horrible time on earth. And I'm inclined to think that there are many martyrs in this bunch. I believe a lot of these are martyrs, those who lost their life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I say this, because look back in chapter six. Remember when we studied chapter six and we did the opening of one of those seals, the fifth seal. Look at verse nine of chapter six. When he opened the fifth seal, chapter six, verse nine, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who go on the earth? And then it says in verse 11, that a white robe was given to each of them. Now listen, watch the next part. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until, until what? Until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And so you have those uh, those martyrs under the altar there in chapter six are crying out, oh, God, avenge us, avenge us, do what's right. And God says, listen, you wait a little bit longer because there's a lot more that are going to die. And I believe we have those here in chapter 7 because they're robed in white robes. They have these palm branches in their hands. And beloved, we find that there are many people who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the question, of course, is how will people hear the gospel? If people are going to get saved, and I shared with you last week, there are four main ways people will get hear the gospel during the tribulation time. I believe the 144,000 are going to be out preaching it all over the place. There are going to be two witnesses that will preach it. We'll study about them in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. There's going to be an angel in heaven flying, preaching the gospel. Revelation 14, 6. And then, of course, there's going to be what, they've been, what people have called the silent witness. Gospel literature. Now, think about how many Bibles are in our world. Think about how many gospel tracts and uh, CDs and DVDs and gospel material will be available. I think people will be searching for answers because all these people have disappeared and there will be a hunger and a thirst and get some answers. And so we find that there'll be the gospel will be proclaimed. And did you notice, beloved, the global emphasis in this passage? Did you notice that people will be saved from all nations and tribes? And peoples and languages. 
You know, we're blessed to be American. I think looking out on this audience, the majority of you are American citizens. And so we kind of think just America sometimes. We think, oh, you know, Jesus, listen, Jesus died for all people, all nations, all tribes, all time. That's why we're involved in reaching people from all over the world. That's why we're involved in missions. The gospel is not just for America. The gospel is not just for North America. The gospel is for every place and every person. We're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Perhaps you heard about the Christian who was against foreign missions. You believe that a Christian who was against foreign, foreign missions. And somehow he ended up attending a missionary rally. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? You're against foreign missions and you end up at a missionary rally. And they began to pass the offering plate. And it came to his time. And he said to the usher, I don't believe in missions. Now, I don't know if any of you talk to our ushers here, but imagine if you're an usher and you're passing around the bucket and you're taking up a missionary offering. The man says, yeah, I don't believe in missions. So, you know, what the usher said to him, he said, then take something out. It's for the heathen. <laughs> take something out. It's for the heathen. Listen, the gospel is for all people everywhere. Now, look, look back at verse nine. They are wearing white robes. They have palm branches in their hands. Now, when you and I think about palm branches, what do we think of? Palm Sunday. Right. Hosanna. Blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. Here, this is obviously a celebration time. It's a time of victory. Does it not speak of victory? They're robed in white palm branches in their hand. They're worshiping. Notice what they're doing. They're worshiping over and over again. We see it. We're back in chapter seven, verse 10. Chapter 7, verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God. How long? Forever and ever. Amen. They're worshiping. And I told you time and time again, God is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our worship and he's worthy of our service. Why? Because he is the savior. He is sovereign. He's in complete and total control. All hell is broken loose upon the earth. It seems everything's out of control, but it's actually under his control. He's sovereign and he's the savior. Salvation belongs to him. But you know, what? we're not done There's another reason why he's worthy of our trust and our worship and our service. Look back at verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? And he said, sir, you know, and so forth. And then going down to verse 16, talking about these people, verse 16. Well, let's back up verse 15. Verse 15 says, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Why? Because they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood. That's what verse 14 says. Verse 16 says, they shall neither hunger anymore. Nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who's in the midst of the throne. Who's the lamb, by the way? Remember, that's Jesus. For the lamb who's in the midst of the throne. Now watch this next part. Will shepherd them. And lead them. To living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And we said he's worthy, first of all, because he's sovereign. Secondly, because he's the savior. But I love this third one. And it's this. He's worthy because he is the shepherd. He is the shepherd. Did you notice it says in verse 15 that these believers, they served him day and night. They served him unceasingly. They had known so much hardship 
upon the earth. I mean, they lived in tribulation time. Now, we're not going to experience that if we know Jesus. We're going to go home to be with Jesus before that begins. I'm convinced of that. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. But these believers came to faith in Christ, and they lived in the midst of hell on earth. And they suffered. And I think many of these, I don't know if I can say all of them, but I think many of these were the martyrs that were being talked about that were going to be killed for their faith. And now they're serving before their Savior, their Sovereign, and their Shepherd. And we learn, obviously, from what is said here, they had a hard time on the earth. First of all, they were hungry. Because it says they don't hunger anymore. Why were they hungry? Well, look at what it says in Revelation thirteen seventeen on the screen. It says in Revelation thirteen seventeen and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Of course, you know, that number is what? Six, six, six. Right. I saw a license plate. Was it the other day? Gabe were riding along and the person's license plate was six, six, six dash something. I said, man, I would reject that plate. But anyway, uh, would you want that license plate? But anyway, we're not we're not superstitious, but still, it's just something about that number. They were from South Carolina. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> I looked to, is that the Antichrist. But anyway, they knew hunger. Why? Because they could not buy or sell. Unless they had the mark of the beast, unless they belonged to the beast, the Antichrist. And so they knew hunger. We're not going to be hungry anymore, he says. Not only were they hungry, they were thirsty. They were thirsty. They're living in the midst of tribulation. And Revelation chapter 16, verse 4 says, Then the third angel poured out his bowl, we'll get to the bowl wrath, on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And so there's a lack of water and drinking water and, and magic. We saw that back in the Old Testament with the Egyptians, didn't we? As, as God is judging them and He brings about His miracles to deliver His people. But they knew hunger and they knew thirst. And not only that, they suffered from being scorched by the sun. No longer will the sun scorch them any longer. Why were they suffering from that? Well, if you continue going to Revelation in chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, look at what it says. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has power over the plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Now remember, God has sealed the 144,000 to be protected from these things. But he's not sealed those who come to faith in Christ during that time. Yes, they're sealed and protected spiritually and for all eternity. But they're going to experience much of the hardship and the physical hardship. They're going to know hunger. They're going to know thirst. They're going to be scorched by the sun. But he says here in this passage, never again. Never again. Why? He says the lamb will shepherd them. And he will lead them to these fountains of living water. Put another way, he's going to care for them. And he's going to guide them. And they love him. And they serve him. And they worship him. Because forever and ever, he's going to care for them and God, and I think they would agree, these believers, with the Apostle Paul, where he says there in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Would you read that with me? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's true for us, beloved. I don't know what you're suffering today. I don't know what you're going through. But I know this. The Lord is our shepherd. 
Now listen, I know he's talking and describing tribulation saints there in this passage, but he's still describing our God. And, and he's still our shepherd. Just as he's going to be their shepherd, he's our shepherd. What did we learn earlier? You know that verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And our shepherd, he guides us and he cares for us. And in the midst of troubles and trials and afflictions, we can call out to him. Why? Because he is our shepherd. And beloved, he is worthy. Worthy not just because he's God. I mean, yes, that's enough. But he's not only worthy, he's wonderful. And he's worthy of our trust, no matter what's going on in our lives. He's worthy of our worship, no matter what's going on in our world. And he's worthy of our service at all times, in all places, because he is worthy and wonderful. And I hope you've seen that in this passage. And I hope you've seen as we've been studying God's heartbeat for people, even in the midst of judgment, which is deserved. He remembers mercy. We see great numbers of people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how worthy and wonderful he is. But here's the question. Do you know him? Do you know him? I didn't say about your brother, your mother, your father, your grandma, your grandpa, anybody else. Yes, they need to know Jesus. But do you know Jesus? Because you must personally repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Let me caution you because somebody might be here today. You might be thinking, well, you know what? If people get saved during the tribulation time, I'm just going to wait. And I'll wait and I'll get saved then. Because if Jesus comes back today and he raptures home all the Christians, then I'll just right then I'll repent of my sin and I'll place my faith in Jesus Christ and I'll get saved. Listen, please don't think that way. Please don't believe that. Please don't don't make that plan. Adrian Rogers talked about people like that in his book on Revelation. And he gave four reasons why that is a foolish thing to do. I want to share those with you real quickly. Why is it foolish to wait to the tribulation time in order to get saved? Well, number one, I want you to hear me now. Listen, you may die before the tribulation. And you go straight to hell. You may die today. And without Jesus, you'll go straight to hell. What a foolish thing it would be for anybody to leave this building banking on another day, another week, another month or another chance. This may be it for you. If you die without Christ, you'll go straight to hell. You may die before the tribulation. But even if you make it through and you enter Adrian Rogers says, you will not believe the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation. You will not get saved. And he gave these verses. I want you to jot these down. You can read them for yourself. I'm going to read them to you later. Or you can read them later. I'm going to read them to you now. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11, 12. And I want you to listen to what 2 Thessalonians 2, 11, 12 say. And for this reason, God will send strong delusion That they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned to, listen, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, what he's saying there is, when you have an opportunity, you know the gospel, you know the truth. And you you reject it, you reject it, you reject it. When tribulation comes, you will believe a lie. And you'll not be saved. You say, well, I have a different interpretation of those verses. What if you're wrong? What if we're right? And you're wrong. So I don't think, you know, I think I can get saved. What if you're wrong? 
you won't get saved. Would you risk that? You have an opportunity today to get saved? You said, no, I'm away. Third, even if you could be saved through the tribulation, what a foolish decision. Why would you want to go through the tribulation time? Why would you want to go through hell on earth? Why would you want to go through hunger and thirst and sun scorch and judgments and all these things? Why would you want to deal with all that when you could trust the Lord Jesus Christ right now, right here, have eternity, have your home in heaven. And when Jesus comes back, you go home to heaven and you're rejoicing with Jesus while this is going on. What a foolish decision it would be for you to say, you know what, I'll just wait and go through the tribulation. But there's a fourth reason. And I think this is a really important one. And that's this. You will miss knowing Jesus today. And you'll miss all the joy and all the peace and all that he's given to you and will give to you when you trust him. You'll miss getting to know Jesus today. You know, the man on the cross, he got saved at the 11th hour, didn't he? I mean, it was 11.59 in his life. Midnight's about to strike. He said, Lord, remember me. That man's saved. And he's in heaven today. But he didn't live for the Lord, did he? Live for himself, live for sin. He missed out on all that. People may get saved on their deathbed, and we pray they do. We hope they do. They'll go home to be of heaven, uh, to heaven. But they miss out on the joy of the Christian life. My grandmother used to talk about, even if there were no heaven after this life, she would still get saved for the joy of this life and what Jesus gives you. Now, praise the Lord, we get both. We get both. I couldn't imagine life without Jesus. Now, I'm grateful. It's only because of his grace that I know Jesus. Only because of his grace, you know Jesus. We're not worthy. We could have been born in the deepest, darkest jungle somewhere and never heard the name of Jesus. But because of his grace and mercy, he places under the gospel, he saved us. We get to know him. We get to trust him. We get to worship him. We get to serve him. We get the, the joy of the Lord. By the way, are you joyful in your Christian life? Some of you don't look like you're joyful. And we return to the simple joy of living and knowing Jesus, don't we? Four reasons. You may die before it. You won't. If you reject him now, if you, if you could, it would be a foolish decision. Why would you want to go through tribulation? And you'll miss knowing Jesus today. And I couldn't agree with Adrian Rogers anymore when he said this. If I were unsaved, I wouldn't wait five minutes to give my heart to Jesus Christ knowing what I do today. You're without excuse, friend. You've heard the gospel. You've sinned. You've fallen short of God's glory. You're under condemnation. Jesus died in your place. God loved you so much. He shed his precious blood. We've sang about it. We've talked about it. We've prayed about it. We preach it. You've read it. You've heard it. You're without excuse. Jesus rose again. He'll receive you. If you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, he'll save you. And you know, if you don't, you'll go to hell when you die. And if you don't, and we get raptured out of here, you'll go through hell on this earth. So, friend, here's very simple. We say, preacher, what do we do with all this? Very simple. I think it's obvious. Number one, if you're lost, get saved. Don't delay. Don't put it off. Say, I'm not sure. Make it sure today. If you're not 100% totally, absolutely positive that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. If you die today, you go to heaven because you know Jesus. I'd run down to the altar. During the invitation time. And I'd make it sure. I'd make it sure. 
and say, Lord, I, I believe. I turn from my sin. I place my faith in you. I want to know that I know Jesus is my Savior. Now, if you are saved, what do you do with this? Well, I think, number one, you worship and praise him. And I think, number two, you go out and share with those who don't know him. And say, listen, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. But Jesus took your judgment upon himself. And thirdly, well, we've talked about it a lot, haven't we? It's there in front of you in big, bold letters. We've said it over and over again. We've talked about chapter 7. God is worthy, first of all, of your trust. Whatever is going on in your life, God is worthy of your trust. Lord, I trust you. I mean, I can understand it. I can't explain it. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know how to figure it out. I don't know how to fix it. But I trust you. Secondly, God, you're worthy of my worship. I don't want to worship anything else. The world cries me to worship this and that and the other. But you alone are worthy of my worship. Why? Because you're sovereign, you're the Savior, and you're my shepherd. And thirdly, you're worthy of my service. Not just on Sundays. Listen, your whole life should be a praise and offering to the Lord. If you're a school teacher, plumber, mechanic, whatever you do, man, you ought to do that for Jesus. That's what the Bible says. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it as unto the Lord. And it's pleasing to him when you do it that. He's worthy of our service. What about you, friend? It's just that simple. It's just that simple. If you're lost today, get saved. If you're saved, go share with those who are lost. And trust him. Worship him and serve him. Get it? Got it? Good. Let's pray. Father, I cry out to you today. Grip the heart of any man, woman, boy or girl, teenager here who does not know for certain beyond the shadow of any doubt that they're saved and on their way to heaven. Bring them in repentance and faith today. During this invitation time, allow us to share with them and help them to understand the gospel and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those of us who do already know you, may our hearts be turned in worship and praise and may our feet be turned to the nations, starting with our own community, our own county, our own state and to the ends of the earth. To share with as many people from every language, tongue, tribe, and nation that Jesus saves. And then, Father, help us, Lord, to honor this truth. To live out this truth. That you're worthy of our trust. You're worthy of our worship. And you're worthy of our service. Not just because you're God. We know you are, O oh Lord. But, Lord, you're not only worthy as God. You are Wonderful. Thank you for being our shepherd and guiding and leading us. Now bless this invitation, I pray, that people respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. 182, whatever God has said to you today, if you're already saved, you want to come and pray, give some birds to him, worship him, praise him, thank him. You need to be saved today. Very simple. You step out and come. We'll help you. We'd love to help you. To know Jesus Christ. 182, I thought was a good closing hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. We want to stand and sing that. You step out. The altar's open. Plenty of room for you here. You come today and you call out to the Lord. The one who is worthy of our trust. Worthy of our worship. Worthy of our service. Not only worthy, 
but wonderful. 182, let's stand and sing. You come.